0: How are you guys doing? Sweet. Are you ready to get at it? All right. um, So this is just—this is week nine. This is where do we go from here. For if you're new, um, as a church, we've gone through an eight-week— Uh, Experience called Gospel in Life where um, we try to come to church every single week. We got in short-term small groups for that whole period of time. We went on a service day all over the city of Madison to different projects to just serve people who aren't us. Um, We all read the same book together, same DVD, all that kind of stuff, um, all about how the gospel relates to as many different areas of our lives as we could study in eight weeks. And um, this this morning, I want to talk about where we're going to go from here. And here's why. Because I know that a lot of you are not coming to the congregational meeting, where we'll talk some about that. And two is, when January comes around, which is the traditional time for pastors to do that. here's what we're going to do this year thing, I, I want to focus on the new people who come to church because it's their New Year's resolution. So I don't want to talk about what we are going to do for a year, those of us who are kind of committed here. So this is like a non-holiday, non-visitory kind of day. I think this is perfect. So what I want to do is I want to talk about where we're going to go from here. Um, yeah. Virtually everybody wants to have momentum in their life. And every Christian would love for their church to have some kind of meaningful momentum, right? That, a sense like you're going somewhere, and you're going somewhere with some force behind it. Your life is going in the right direction, and... You feel like you're in the right place, doing the right thing. God is blessing you. That's a really good feeling. Momentum is a really good feeling, right? You win a bunch of games in a row. It just feels like the, the water just parts for you, right? You get a bunch of sails in a row. The water just— it Just certain things happen, and things just get easier because you've got momentum, right? Everybody wants that. And the easiest way in modern culture to generate momentum is to do something new. I was listening to a talk on generating momentum in churches, and um, the, uh, the guy said, and I think this is functionally true, but one of the things he said is the best way to start momentum is to do something new, just even if it's the same thing. Just rename it, tell people it's new. And it, it generates momentum because people are interested in new things, they pay attention to new things, and they buy the new phones that come out. And so new is, new is interesting, and it attracts people. Um, and we all know people who are always emerging from this And I was in that phase then And I'm in this phase now And, you know, I, I'm in my tight pants phase And we're all doing the whatever phase And, um, and, and the, people see their Most people see their lives as a series of Phases or steps Or, oh, I'm so over that now And we're so into this here And blah, 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 blah. Who's up and who's down and, um, but, but I think one of the things that we need to At some point come to grips with Is that to be honest, um, that kind of attitude generates a lot of speed, but it doesn't generate a lot of change. Um, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of, quote, transformation that doesn't last. You could do the new thing, and you can do the, tran- the new transforming thing um, that's going to give you some kind of makeover. And it's really just a lot like buying new things to make us feel better. And functionally, it's really grasping at something rather than really building something. Um, And so, therefore, one of the dangers of doing something like gospel in life or doing something really cool after gospel in life or buying the new smartphone or doing the new whatever or getting a new I don't know what is that um, it ingrains in us even deeper a character, a character trait of, consu- of consumerism. That is, that we pull consumerism into our faith and th- I think we're, we're in danger after a while of bringing consumerism so deeply into our faith that we actually think that our spiritual consumerism is our faith. So let me, let me talk about that for just a minute and then I want to get into what we want to do about it. Um... One of the reasons why people often think That their faith isn't consumeristic Is that um, They confuse consumerism with, with materialism When they're not the same thing we, we, It's often It's very common to think consumerism and materialism This is great to talk about just before we buy Christmas presents I hope right? Um, but they're not the same thing Materialism is loving stuff Consumerism is loving to acquire stuff those are two different rushes There's the rush of acquiring the thing And then there is the different pleasure of loving the thing you acquired And so you can be both You can get a rush out of buying stuff and out of having stuff You can be just a materialist, not get a big rush out of buying stuff But you really love the stuff you have Or you can be a consumerist and not a materialist, right? You give stuff away, you're such a generous person Then you just go buy and spend and spend money you don't have and it's not because, and you go, oh, I'm not materialistic You're right, you're just consumeristic, that's all they're different things, and if you conflate them, then you'll get confused Because the other one will get you And some of us are both And some of us are not too much of either and, But the fact is That um, once you understand that consumerism Is finding happiness or joy in the acquisition of something It's very easy to be spiritually consumeristic And the thing that we love to acquire, the thing that we love to buy that's new, is the new spiritual experience. Right? For our charismatic brothers and sisters, that's like a new touch of God, right? Or something like that. But for for evangelicals, it tends to be the next thing we're studying. The next thing we're going to do as a church. We're going to take this hill. We're going to grow our attendance. We're going to build that building. We're going to— we're gonna, we're gonna do a new thing We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna knock this series out of the park We're gonna have a, we're gonna have a cool experience Where everybody's gonna do such and such and so and so And it, it's very easy for us to set, for us to put our hope in the next thing What's the next thing we're gonna do? What's the next thing we're gonna study? What's the ne- because I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere But here's, here's the issue there are two huge problems when we do church that way. And I've experienced them. And it's—listen, if you don't think this is— this, is, I promise you, in five minutes this will matter. Okay? So stick with me. If you—if we do church that way, first thing that's going to happen is there's an effect on the church, and that is there becomes this never-ending arms race of the next amazing transformational experience. And, guess, and, and it, that does three things. One is— it, um, it causes us to compete with all the other churches in town. It ends up being a market share race. And so the, so the question isn't, what do, we, what do we need to look at together? To build discipline and discipleship and virtue toward God and his glory into our lives more deeply. No, it's, we need to be cooler than Blackhawk and City Church and this. How can we, how can we be a little more, how can we package it a little better? How can we be... Right. The second thing is um, with that, Here's what that does It burns out everybody who does anything Because you're constantly on this treadmill Of an arms race with other people Rather than focusing on what really we ought to be focusing on um, Is you burn out Your pastor, you burn out your staff And you burn out everybody who does anything in the church Because what you really believe is That in order to generate Transformation, you have to You have to generate movement and so you just keep—and it just tires everybody out. Um, and the third thing is that it ends up deforming us spiritually, which is the second bit here, which is what it does to us. It, def- it deforms and hurts us spiritually. Because when consumerism makes its way into how we follow God and believe in Jesus, it confuses our minds because we think that the process of changing is totally different than what it is. Acquiring the new spiritual event doesn't change us. It doesn't help us really. It just, it just creates a new experience where we feel like something's happening, but very little is happening. I mean, ask yourself how much do you think you've actually retained from Gospel in Life? All the sermons, all the DVDs, read the book, did the things, fill out the exercises. How much do you think you really retained? Probably not that much. But wait, let's get on to the next thing, right? Um, the second is it exhausts your will. Because you know, you have some general sense, because the preacher's always talking about what it looks like to be spiritual, what it looks like to be godly. This is what it looks like to be godly. And then you look at your behavior, and you say, well, I'm gonna—I'm gonna—, I'm gonna I'm going to do the next transfer. Before you know it, it's self-salvation. You're back to work. So you're, I'm going to be part of the next experience. I'm going to get into that next thing. I'm going to do that next thing, and I'm going to change. And what happens is over time, your will gets exhausted at the lack of effectiveness of that kind of way of seeking God and seeking godliness. And what that does then is over time, it depresses the stew out of your emotions and your passions. Christianity isn't working my life isn't changing. My family isn't getting closer knit together. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning all this stuff, but when it comes right down to it, I don't know anymore. I keep going to studies, but I don't really know my Bible better. I keep hearing sermons, but I haven't locked down anything in my life. And, and there's a sense of, like, just desperation and anxiety and fatigue. And... It's, and the reason is That it's useless to transform your character So Okay let me, let me try to say it like this Okay Now I, I, you need, Here's what you need to know Before I even do any math um, Is that I was put in advanced math In fourth grade Which could cause you to believe That I would be good at math <laughs> That is wrong Um when I was put into fourth grade I was into fifth grade math I was to learn fifth grade math But I also meant I was in the same room with fifth grade girls So I didn't learn any math Every year I'm seventh grade But I'm around eighth grade girls I'm in, And so I don't I, I, I use a calculator Okay, but I did, I did look this up on the internet And I think momentum is a good metaphor For Spiritual growth in relationship to this. Now listen, you have to get this because this is at the base of my heart I think it's deeply biblical and it will deeply affect the way we do church And the way I encourage you to seek God in your life, okay This matters and it's gonna matter for a decade or well until you fire me, right? Okay, so here here is the equation For momentum Now, if you're already hyperventilating, there's bags in the pew in front of you just— I'm just kidding. That's not true. So, P is momentum. So, momentum is mass times velocity, okay? So, mass is mass, and velocity is both speed and direction, right? Now, if, if you say, okay, what I want is momentum, and so this is the value we're looking for, right? So you've got—you've got, you've got a—you say, okay, so we're going to generate this through speed, right? So let's say we're going to do a velocity of five, right, times, but the weightiness of, the, of it being built into our virtue and character is real low in this model, right? And so we're functioning off of a one. So how much momentum do we have? Well, we have a five. And we got a five through this much activity, Right? You see, the real way to get Somewhere is to change This number Because If this is how much we do, how much activity There is, how much frenetic Motion we create There is a limit To how high that can go It can't go very high Especially in the lifestyles Middle class white people have made For themselves There's no margin to do anything And so this cannot go higher. And if I asked you for this to go higher, you're just going to say no, right? Or if you say yes, you only do it for a little while until you get tired and fatigued and emotionally burnt out, right? So what has to happen is actually this number has to increase. If this is two, right, then this is ten. Oh look, it's already double, right? And then you can go down through fives and you're going to get 15, 20, 25, and that is a lot more than that. Because, because there's mass, there's weightiness to it, you've, you've, you've got something. And for this much frenetic energy, you get five times the payoff because there's weight to it. The issue here is, how does a church— do ministry in a way that it creates spiritual weightiness in the lives of all of us so that we don't have to just keep burning people out and make sure that every Christian walks out of here as anxious and burnout as possible in order to think they're really following Jesus when they're doing something Jesus never asked them to do and they're doing something that's counterproductive to actual transformation. I don't know if you've ever ridden a jet ski, but they're fun ride on, and um, they go really fast now, and so if, if, you, if you get on a jet ski, and you get that sucker up to like 50 miles an hour, okay, to where you, if you're smart at all, you're a little scared of what's about to, whatever is about to happen, right, and you just cut the gas, what happens? It stops immediately, right? It just goes, Right? That's it It stops really But you go 50 miles an hour How can you stop that fast? Well, it's because there's no There's not enough boat mass to the jet ski For it to cut through the resistance And the minute you cut power You you don't go anywhere But I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a sailboat At a dock that's moving too fast (laughs) You know, the thing's going like three knots and it, it feels like you're pulling—you're pushing back against He-Man and the Incredible Hulk, and they each have a hold of one of your fists. It's, it, you, it's impossible to stop. Why? Well, because sailboats, as opposed to powerboats, they fill them with rocks. Do you know this? Right? Like, I remember we went in Florida, we went on the, San, the replicas of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And I—and I was—and I was, they told us how heavy the boats were. It was thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. They weren't that big. And I was like, okay— how do you get that kind of weight? I mean, do you just like, how do you get, do you pour concrete in there? No, 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 we just throw rocks in there. That's all they did. They put rocks and they filled the keel with rocks because that weight steadied the boat in the waves and it just helped it cut and it had momentum. And so you could take the sails down on the sailboat and it's just going to keep going for a while, a lot further than a jet ski. You drop the sails and you cut the gas on a side-by-side sailboat and jet ski at, the, at a line where the jet ski is going 50 miles an hour And the sailboat is going 2 And the sailboat is going to far out distance the jet ski Friends, here's why I think that's so important Because I think that a lot of churches have a jet ski ministry model And I think the liability of that is it both hurts people's lives and fails to produce real Christian discipleship. It doesn't create the kind of virtues that both um, solidify the mind, inflame the passions, um, direct the will in a way that really creates people who are really like Jesus— And so, what I want for us is to not be a group of people constantly jerking about towards the new thing, doing the new hottest book or the best video series or spending all our money on lights, cameras, and action. I, d- I don't think that's helpful. And I think it'll actually be not just not be helpful, I think it'll be harmful. Um, I want us to recognize that real transformation is not a makeover. That change, um, the kind of change that we need is one that that is slow to accelerate and long in motion. It's not, Christian change shouldn't make your life carsick. Um, And that virtue takes long-term training with periodic gut checks. So, see, there are events in real Christian growth. It's not like there's no events. It's just plotting all the time, same pace. That's not true, because in life, as you plot along in that growth, there are moments where something happens where you have to make a gut check. There's an event. But what you really need to make it in that event is something already settled that's been building over time. That is just virtue burned into your character on a level deep enough to where what would be the hardest decision of your life isn't even a decision. One of the parenting models that frustrates the heck out of me is, um, the, is give a child a choice every single thing that happens. It just drives me crazy And, um, and, here, and here's why it, um, I'm all for giving kids choices Particularly if you want to wear out your strong-willed child We do that But not everything And not even the majority of things be, And here's why Because in real life You make almost no decisions Not that you don't make choices But that if you have strong convictions Of stuff you already believe That's burnt into your character in the, On the basis of virtue at a very deep level Virtually every choice you make is already made It's not a choice. It's already made. Even the most—and the most decision—most difficult decisions of your life are often the ones most immediately made by your previous convictions that have been burned into virtue on the basis of what God has already said that you've responded to. The hardest decision of my life um, with Alexi, in terms of how people would normally perceive it, was whether or not when we found out when Lexi was five months pregnant with our third child, and they said that the child would be brain dead and would never move whether or not to have an abortion. Most people would say, based on both of our lives, that was the most difficult decision of our lives. We made that decision in about four seconds over tropical smoothies, and it was it. There was, it, it wasn't a hard decision. It was, a, it was an emotionally difficult decision because I had to deal with all my idolatry screaming for vengeance, But in terms of the choice itself, we talked about it for about 12 seconds, and it was over. And that was that. Not because it wasn't an important choice, and not because we didn't have multiple options, but because we believed something already. That thing had been burned deep enough into our character that it wasn't a choice. But I can go back to when I was 16 or 18 or 19 and I, and I didn't have a lot of the virtues that have been, I've been trying to build over time and I was blown around. I was, just, I was flying everywhere. I couldn't make a decision. Even decisions that should have been no-brainers. Real Christian transformation is the long-term acquisition of virtue for the right spiritual reasons. It's the long-term acquisition of virtue for the right spiritual reasons. And the right spiritual reasons are in response to truth, for the glory of God, and for the true good of another. Love of neighbor. Now, here's the thing. You and I have been taught culturally to be terrified by that slide. Because what we really believe is, is that if we seek to be disciplined and prudent and virtuous and holy in relationship to those things, that it's going to make us stuffy, prudish, puritanical, Victorian, it's going to make us joyless kinds of people. And listen, that's just, trying to come up with an adjective that's sufficiently—but I can say. It's—that's it's, not true. Okay? That's false. Listen, I don't know if you know this, the Puritans weren't even puritanical. One of the—one of the biggest linguistic hokums of the 20th century was making the word Puritan mean puri- puritanical. I don't know if you know this, but in a Puritan colony— you could sue your spouse for not having sex with you. <laughs> like, like they were seriously. You, I mean, they were like, no. Nope. They, they, they talked about joy and about obeying God's commandments in all things, including being happy. And, and I don't know if you know this, but um, the the church paid for all the beer at John Withrop's installation as governor. Like th- these were not these are people who dressed. What Perry Miller, a scholar on the period, said with every color under the rainbow. The whole like black hat and dr- That didn't exist until like three generations later When Puritanism died The group of people still called Puritans Got really religious and legalistic But the Puritans They were There was nothing prudish about them And nothing like what I, I, You see what I'm saying? It, you, you, you cannot let yourself get emotionally intimidated into believing that virtue is bad. Okay, so I want to talk about four, four commitments that I think we need to make over the next year and over the next long term to be the kind of church that can grow in the real infusion and deepening of character, to become really like Jesus in a way that escapes all the pitfalls of consumeristic evangelicalism, which I think will ultimately destroy us. Okay. Are you you doing okay? Do I need to tell some jokes? (laughs) Great. Okay. Um, First, a long-term commitment to a better understanding of the gospel— we, okay, I've, we've already spent a year doing that, right? Um, but most of the people I talk to can't, can't, can't just explain it yet. People used to make—I think I've said this before— people used to say to Martin Luther, Brother Luther, why do you always—every time we come to church, you always preach justification by faith alone? When are you going to preach something else? And he said, well, as soon as you get that, I'll move on to the next thing. But, but beloved, every week you forget it. And so um, one of the things that we have to figure out how to do is non-repetitious repetition. Because virtue comes from training. What is training essentially? A series of repetitive behaviors designed to teach us memory. Right? So if we're gonna become like Jesus and we're not, we're going there's a bunch of stuff we're gonna have to do over and 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 over, 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 over again. Right? That shouldn't be weird. That should be expected. When I went to basketball practice, I didn't go, oh, we're doing that drill again? No, we did the same drills every single day because we were training, right? It says in um, Romans 12, 2, that one of the, what we are called, what's, what's called to happen in us, he says, the apostle says, don't, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will, but you see what he's saying—that it's that's based on a mindset. What's that mindset? Well, that mindset is is here in, in Colossians three one four. This is an example of that mindset. He says, "Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things." you see what he's saying? He's saying the gospel affects how you think about everything, right? So you're going to set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of this world. You're going to worship Jesus, not the different idolatries we're prone to. That, and that's the mindset. And that mindset has to be so ingrained that we can immediately test, test things and know what God's will is because we have submitted to the spiritual process of the transformation of our minds. Spiritual transformation is profoundly mental. Right? So When we did Gospel in Life, Gospel in Life was designed to help us have a very God-focused idea of salvation. That it's on the basis of God's just love for us, not based on our merit. It's salvation on the basis of believing what Christ did for us, not earning um, Christ's merit on our own. Um, It's on the basis of that Jesus is not an additional thing to everything else we're seeking, but the one who defines all things everywhere in our life and reframes them in a new and different way than we thought of them before. But here's the problem with that, and I think a lot of you really felt this, and we heard a lot of comments, is that gospel in life was a little like a drink from a fire hydrant. You know, the gospel working into every area of life in eight weeks. Right? like Honestly, I think that for some of you, um, going to a small group every week was a, was a, big, was a big deal. And I don't want to minimize that because I, I think that was great. What a, there's a lot of people who are like, you know what, we're going to do this. Um, but, but when we go back and do the math, what was the commitment, right? It was a, maybe a 20-hour commitment total to come to church and to go to small group, to work the gospel into every area of our life. The city, the heart, idolatry, work, service, justice, heaven, <laughs> right I mean gospel in life, really all it can do is is hopefully pique some some areas of appetite in you, right I mean, my hope was not that you you and I were able to get the gospel into everywhere in our lives, but to but to basically it, you remember uh, if you 've been to college, you remember taking the the survey classes? So you take survey in sociology or survey in whatever And all the class is designed to do is basically frame a little bit About the knowledge of the discipline And basically make sure you know you don't know anything about it And to pique the interest of some that it's worth studying That's really all you could do, right? You Take history 101, it's like, yep, so a lot of things happened And uh, we know a lot about it, and it's interesting. I mean, that's basically—that's the three-point message of History 101, right? And in, in that sense, that's what gospel in life was. It was a—it was a drink from a fire, and it's like, look, do you see—do you see how the gospel is meant to fundamentally transform the way you think about everything? And do you see how, when you spend 40 minutes discussing how the gospel relates to work, that you haven't even started to begin to discuss the first bit about what it would look like to apply the gospel to your particular situation of work? And then you go, man, gosh, yeah. And then, then, do you see how important and worthwhile it would be? It is for that to happen. In every area of your life. That's my hope, that you would come out of this not saying, gosh, so great to have the gospel worked out in every area of my life. No, the hope is to come out and say, and to be reborn in the understanding of, oh my goodness, I don't even understand the gospel I believe in. In most of my life— And I need to commit whatever time I have left in a fundamentally diligent way to somehow learning and working that out and knowing it and applying it and being changed by it and for it to be built into a deeper virtue into my character so burned into me that my choices aren't even choices. I know the truth immediately and I have the courage to do it. Now, there's two main mechanisms for this, a high point, okay? One is this. One is worship um, and committing this time um, every week we can to doing things that cause us to understand the gospel better. So even if, we, if even if we don't like to sing, you know, to sing the content of the song to exercise the work of devotion in which we say God is God and we are not and offering God what he deserves and and, um, and to listen to preaching and for me to try to not be terrible at it And for this, whole, this thing that happens For this to be a priority for us Is enormous it's not, See, what I, my hope for you is for, for you to, to think about church Going to worship on Sunday morning Not as, you know, we're Christians We're supposed to go to church You know, there's that verse in Hebrews that says Don't forsake the gathering together No, 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 no that's not the point The point is we need the gospel worked out into every— we need, we need to be in this process. We need to get some momentum, and we need some mass. And this needs— to. so I can't— I need to go. And then you're not as angry about having to go. You can talk to your kids about why you go to church fundamentally differently. You have a totally different attitude about getting there and what it's for. The way you listen to preaching and engage with music and do, it will all be fundamentally different. Right. The second thing is, Okay, a couple things about this um, Last Sunday Now this Sunday is not the case But last Sunday was the most people we've had here Not on a holiday um, since, I, since I've been here And one of the things, one of the things that we're going to face Is that we're going to bump up against that With new people Until we go to a second service And so here's, if you feel like It's too crowded here Just hang in there A month or two, okay just hang in there for a little bit while we figure out what we need to do, because it's just it 's just reality that if we don't if we don 't go to two services then we 're going to keep going up're five hundred and fifty people come, and then all the people who don 't like people, which is like thirty percent of the population, you know will be like i 'm not going there because that 's just sweaty, and people talk to me, and um, I need more space and so um you know, we, we look, look, we want to accommodate the antisocial introverts, okay? <laughs> Jesus died for them, and we, we're we going to— So just hang—if you feel like, oh, it's crowded, just hang, hang in there, okay? Hang in there like a month and a half or something, and by then we'll either disappoint you or do something about it. Um, also, there is an 11 o'clock service in the Mez till the end of the year going on right now, okay? So if you already think this is too crowded, there's only like 25 people up there, okay? And you can go and—and—and—and— and, um, and, and, there it is. And we have a plan underway. So there's that. Okay, the second, here's the second thing. The second mechanism for this is adult Bible fellowships. Okay, set second, our second hour Sunday morning gig that Lisa said this morning, we're going to be doing a little bit more. We're going to, are starting today. Okay. And there is this fundamental question that comes up with people when we push small groups where people go, okay, well, time out. Um, there's adult Bible fellowships. There's small groups. Um, w- which one am I supposed to do? And um, hopefully by this point, you already know one of the words I'm going to attack in that sentence is supposed to, right? That's not the point. The point isn't us, me, pressuring you into doing stuff. That's not the point, right? That's not the point. The point is, what's it going to take to get the gospel into our character over time so that there's a deep enough spiritual mass, so that there's real spiritual momentum in our lives, so we can face every decision, every moment with joy and with decisive courage? What's that going to take? And so adult Bible fellowships are an an attempt to create a unique atmosphere in which certain things can happen that don't happen anywhere else. Um, They're a place where you can drill deeper down into Bible passages. There's only so much Bible exposition I can do in a sermon because I've got to preach at you too right? And so uh, a- ABFs and, uh, can go deeper in the Bible than you can go to in the sermon or at small groups. You, you know how deep small group discussions can get. Small group discussions work best when they're personal, when they're applicational, when people are sharing with each other, encouraging each other. They, they don't spend the majority of their time working out what the Bible really says and how to understand it, and how to interpret for themselves. But ABFs are the ones that focus on Bible passages are totally dedicated to that, and that isn't done anywhere else particularly if you can't do it on your own at home. It's a place to learn skills of studying the Bible yourself in a way that's unique from small groups and Sunday morning worship. It's a place to discuss, question, and interact in a way. You, you know, if, if, if you guys all kept standing up and disagreeing with me throughout the course of the sermon and asking questions and saying, well, what about this? And I, my aunt says that, and we wouldn't get very far. We already don't get very far, right? But in ABFs, you have that interactive Atmosphere, which is necessary for deep learning, right? When you learn interactively, you, you retain more. It works in deeper. It affects you in a way that just listening often does not, right? Um, it's a place to engage with issues that don't come up much, much on Sunday mornings. There's a lot of issues that if I just preach the Bible, they don't come up very much. For example, the persecuted church. Missions. Things like that Things that don't come up a lot But that are part of understanding how the gospel functions in the world What God is doing Where are you going to learn about that? It's a place where you can dwell longer on specific things It's a place um, where you can get training that's not for everyone Where are we going to train leaders? Right? Where do we train the small group leaders? Where do we? Where do we? People who want to know how to teach better, how to, where do we do that? Well, ABFs is uni- uniquely capable of being available for that. Um, it's a place for beginners to learn. Like we have a class right now, beginning Christianity. You don't know squat. You don't know what the big and little numbers in the Bible mean, and you're not following Nick right now. Let me tell you what's for you. Right? It's that beginner Christianity class, and so ABFs are really helpful for that. Right? Instead of spending 15 months trying to catch up. So you can figure out what on earth I'm talking about. You can spend 4 or 5 weeks going to the beginner Christian class right after this and boom. You'll be pretty much caught up to where you can hang, right? It's a place where you can meet people who could influence your life in personal relationships and places where you could find people who might benefit from your influence and it's a place to expose and, and an opportunity for you to expose your kids to second hour so that they can have all those benefits too. So in order to dwell on the gospel, we need to think about that. Okay, I, I need to move a little faster. The second is, um, we need to progress as a Madison gospel movement. And that is, as High Point Church, we need to actually think about how as a, as a movement and a community, and even as an organization, we're going to continue in the process of growing strong again. Um, this, is, this is a little bit touchier than the other points I'm going to make. hopefully. But um, th- remember the passage we studied the first week in Gospel and Life in Jeremiah 29? One of the things it said about the Jews going into captivity, it says, when you go there as a people, don't decrease in number. As a nation of people, yes, you need to live for the good of the Babylonians, but as Jews, don't decrease. You need to increase. And there, there needs to be a place where the city on a hill strikes out from. There has to be a fire in the city. For it to be the shining city on a hill. And, and so therefore, um, one of the implications of building a, a, a people to reach a people, a city to reach a city, a community to reach a community, being the church matters, the local church matters. Our, our abstract devotion to the risen Jesus who we have not seen Fundamentally, it has to convert into a commitment to a local church and real neighbors and Christians who we have seen and are with. And um, High Point has been for a number of years um, re- recovering from a place that wasn't a lot of fun, I was told. Um, so let me, I want to tell you what my hope is. Here's my goal for us in this. Um, I wanna be, I'd like to be back as a real-time movement like functioning in real time by 2014. That is, I want to put, I want to, as best we can, put our financial past behind us, our structural past behind us, and as much other things as we can behind us um, by 2014. Um, and we aren't there yet, but I, th- oops, that's interesting. Um, but here, here's what it's going to take. It's going it's going to take four steps, actually financially, to make this happen. And I'm telling you this because we're going to be doing year-end giving, right, like we did last year. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I want to tell you what it's going to take. One is, um, a couple of years ago, High Point Church was in a place where it, for a little while where it wasn't even solvent. It was functionally living in the red for a while. And obviously that had to get fixed. And it did. A lot of people were, lived very sacrificially and, and got the church through that. And um, it, was a, it was an amazing time of people pulling together for that. And then um, we got, had to get to the point where we actually didn't just live in the red, but we actually made our budget so we could pay our promises. And, um, and we, we, we got there somewhere last year, which was really cool. Um, And that was really good. Now, so now there's, there's two more steps. And the next step is this one, number three, where it says fix and update our infrastructure. Because High Point went through a number of years of really just scratching the bottom of the barrel to get by, a lot of the investments that needed to be made to keep us up to date in terms of our building and our infrastructure and all that kind of stuff, they just didn't get paid you know, if you, if you have a furnace that's going to go out in 20 years, but it costs a lot of money, you, you should be saving for 20 years, right? So that when that happens, you've got money. Well, that money actually went to pay other things because things weren't going very well. And so um, we're actually at the point now where the, the church was built in 1992. There's a lot of stuff that's just going down. And there's going to be a season of fairly unevent, like you won't see anything change, but we're going to spend a bunch of money. And um, that's just what it's going to take to be High Point Church for a little while. Um, and it's actually a pile of money. Um, this, just, there, this year, um, the commitments we need to make to keep things kind of rolling, it's actually 108 k and that's not including fixing our sound system. However, it is an, that's an, a, a fixing of an enormous amount of things. Um, including, basically what this comes down to is all heating and cooling systems. They're all 20 years old, and they're all dying. And so we're not just catching up for 20 years of not investing, but we're actually pushing out 20 years in front. And um, one of the things that is also coolest about 25 of that, we've already done. You've already given. Um, we've, we've done things with our budget so that um, money that you've already given, we haven't spent, and we put into a reserve fund to start to save for these expenses, which is Great. But it's not 100. That's not 108, is it? So um, there's going to be a bit of a season of that. And here's here's what I here's what I think we need to recognize is I think that we could do this in a recession. And I I also think that it can be fun. I, I don't see any reason why it can't be. Um, but it's what it's what it's we've got to do. It's what we're going to get to do together. And so we're gonna the elders are going to set a goal. And then let's see if we can meet it And rejoice in the fact that we are Every minute now we are gaining ground And we are coming out of it And, and in a few years We'll be in a situation where when I say When I say at Christmas time Alright, um, here's the goal $150,000 Because there will be eight services by then, right? And um, <laughs> and here's what we're going to do We're going to build two clinics We're going to give a We're going to give 20,000 Bibles away in Iran We're gonna That's what we'll be talking about And I want I want to get there I'm really excited to get there To support church planners that we really believe in And to get involved in missions And to do real helpful things For people that aren't us That will glorify the name of Jesus And draw people to the name of Jesus I want to get there But friends, we gotta get through this And um. That's just reality. And, um, that's all the time I have. Just talk about that real briefly. The second, third thing is a growing commitment to Christian community. Um, there's this, there's this passage in Philippians 2, 24 to 30, which I'm actually not going to read right now because it's 1043, um, where Epaphroditus goes to Paul and he's sent by the Philippian church and he gets sick and he almost dies. And there's this love exchange between the three where Paul says, um, you love me enough to send Epaphroditus to me and to risk him. He risked his life so that I would be comforted. Now I know you're anxious about him because you heard he was sick. So I'm going to send him back to you so that you can feel better about it. And basically it's like everybody loves each other too much. Is the, uh, like you get this sense like... They really love Epaphroditus, but they really love Paul. And Epaphroditus really loves them, but they really love Paul. And somebody had to go to Paul and provide for his needs. So they they all gave, and Epaphroditus took it, but Epaphroditus got sick, and he almost died. And, and they found out about it, but Paul's really comforted by Epaphroditus, because he really loves Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus represents that church that he really loves. But now he knows they're anxious that he's not there, and so he sends them back because he loves them. And there's all this kind of, like, love drama. Not from sin, but just kind of, like— they all just love each other so much that you know they're kind of like oh, oh. <laughs> and what and you know one of Paul's favorite things to call the church was brothers. In fact, in, in Philemon, this one page book in the Bible, um, Paul has this runaway slave come to him. Um named Onesimus, and he, belong, he is owned by this guy Philemon who's a Christian. And Onesimus is with Paul, and so how long are you going to be with Paul before you become a Christian? So basically he becomes a Christian. So Paul says, okay, you've become a Christian. Now your duty is to go back to Philemon, and he can kill you under Roman law. And he said, but I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write a letter. So Paul writes this letter. First line, he goes from Timothy and I to the brothers, blah blah. blah. And then he call, And then in verse like eleven, he calls um, Philemon brother, right? And then he gets down on further. He says, "I'm sending Enesmus back to you. He's come to believe in Jesus, and so now you won't receive him as your slave, but as the dearest brother." And he, he basically insinuates it'll be really neat to see how you treat him now that he's your brother and you have as deep an affection for him as you have for me. Which is a little snide But I think also deeply sincere Paul knows On the basis of Jesus Onesimus has become Philemon's brother And on that basis Their relation has been fundamentally changed And and you see the goal is not small groups The goal Is loving each other Like that The goal is to send off A missionary And ten years later Care where they are and what they're doing the goal is to care for everybody else's children so that, so that we never have to go, we know we need more people in the nursery. We just—we want, want that mom to have a break. We want that—we we, want to make sure the kids get nursed—it's we, 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 just love creates community. And small groups are a structure by which we can discipline and train ourselves to get in a position and to be and to do the kinds of things that are necessary for that. <clears throat> and then lastly, a renewed um, and intentional engagement with the city and the world in the area of service. Um, Lisa made a great video um, for our, our day, and, and I can't show it right now because I have to say just a couple more things, um, but we'll have it on YouTube and we may show it again at another service. But I, I want to say something quickly about this. Um, October 22nd, our Serve Madison Day was, was great. And one of the things we have to give ourselves to as a church is the realization that sacrificial generosity is the price of influence. If you've got a pencil, this is that would be a good one. Sacrificial generosity is the price of influence. And um, Jesus said in Matthew ten eight, He said, "Freely you have received, so freely give." And um, we need to be a people who love in a way that it actually generates compassion and action. And that is something that is going to have to flow through small groups and the diaconal ministry structurally. And both of those ministries have taken a huge step forward in the last year. But getting that right is going to take some time. So if you're one of those people who are like, yeah, October 22nd was great, but man, shouldn't we be like tutoring reading in one of the schools? And shouldn't we like be downtown doing this? And shouldn't we? And, And the answer is yes. Yes. But Building a structure in which we can get everybody involved through small groups and deploy people in really meaningful ways and into good experiences is going to take a little time. Be patient with me and with us while we do that. Okay, we have some people who've been working greatly for that. So let me just end with this quickly. Um, let's let's us kill church codependency. Let's us do that. Okay. Here's here's how church works. I want to be a star and you want me to be easy on you and tell you nice things and not challenge you. Okay, that's, that's the human condition. Um, I want a I big church with big budgets and I want to go fishing in the Gulf of Mexico and, and you want to feel good and, um, and so there's this wonderful codependency and by wonderful I mean horrifying that, that is generated in churches commonly where the pastor wants to be patted on the back and told he's fantastic and, and, I, and I want that, but that has to die in me. And your desire to get by with going to church, or get by with a little bit of godliness, or get by with a little bit of devotion to things—it's got to die. It's got to go. And um, there's a passage that John Calvin wrote about on a number of occasions in um, in First Timothy. Says this: First Timothy four thirteen and sixteen. Until I come, devote yourselves yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given to you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, one of the things Paul was telling Timothy was, and Timothy was in a in Ephesus at this and It was a big church, and there was a lot of demands. And he said, look, you need to teach, you need to preach, you need to read the Bible publicly, and you need to do all those things. But listen, as a pastor, you need to realize you cannot fake this. The, the only way you can build a church with some spiritual mass and real momentum is if you are so given to the message of your own preaching and to what the Bible says and to watch your life in your life so that everybody you pastor actually sees you growing every year, every month. They can see it. it, it you, that you're not perfect, but they can see a change in you. There is, there is, tra- and that is, is what will create the real spiritual weight because they know you're doing it. And that cannot be faked. And I have to deal with that because I would much rather take the easy route. There's a big part of me that would much rather take the easy route and not figure out how to do all the stuff I say we should do. And you would never know if I didn't do most of it. But I have to do that. And here's the thing. Listen, that is 100% equally true of you. There is, there is no way to get the momentum without the mass. I don't care how much velocity you put in there. And, and the only way to be the kind of father your family needs, or the kind of mother your family needs, or the kind of student you were meant to be, or the kind of—all of you have a congregation, and we all—there is, no, is no way to do this without mass. There is no way to do this without virtue being built over time for the right reasons, for the glory of God. There is no way—there is no way to be the church— And to grow into what we have already been declared, the spotless bride of Christ. God's one plan for a redemptive force in the earth. Any other way than by giving ourselves wholly, not just to the next spiritual fad, but for long, deep, true transformation. Deep in our character, in the form of virtue that gives us the kind of comfort and strength and courage that's necessary to motivate us for all the things that we have called to do and to set ourselves up mentally and emotionally so that we will enjoy them. I mean, do you remember in John's gospel, Jesus prayed before he came to the cross and he, it says that he blurts it out in joy. God, I'm so glad you revealed these these things to the dumb and babies and children among us, but sometimes you hide them from these proud—and I love that about you. And meanwhile, he's getting persecuted by the important people. And he says—and he's full of joy. And see, it's not just, will you make the right decision? Will you have the courage? Will you be transformed over time? Will you escape the kind of mental and emotional fatigue that will come from being consumeristic in our faith? The question is, will you enjoy it too? Will you enjoy going to small group and figuring out your schedule to actually get there? Will you enjoy coming to church and saying, I get to go to second hour? Will you, en- will you enjoy reading the Bible rather than finding it a duty? Will you enjoy these things? See, this is going to only happen—joy is the great motivator. Not fear and not pride— And so, over the next year, I'm going to try to make these things clear and doable and in structure so that we can do them. We can live it out together and we can get the kind of spiritual mass slowly growing in our lives so that we're really deeply transformed and we're not flipping up and down and all, all over the place. We're not trying to blow the church up with attendance, but that we're trying to be the church. And, and we'll grow and people will give and we will probably hire more staff and we probably won't go bankrupt. That's and that's great. But those are all effects. They're not the goal, right? And so I'm going to try to do my part, which is great because that's a great opportunity for my stupidity, right, is that there's lots of progress you could see. <laughs> um but I want my prayers that the whole city of Madison would see our progress. And that they would see that it's coming from a deep place of virtue and out of joy in a way that consumeristic, transformational nonsense, could, a place that could never get us. That's right. Father, um, would you help us to be made into the likeness of Christ? And that we would not see our growth faddishly. I pray, Father, that you would help us to accomplish what I just talked about instead of me just restating it. Um, Would you help us? Would you pour out your spirit and make us capable? Would you help us to see the gospel more deeply and love it? And would you make us happy to be and, and to live and move and have our being and to do all what we do, whether it's eating or drinking, for the glory of Christ? Pray in his name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the benediction? Oh, gosh.